Genesis 3, 6 through 10, and Revelation 21, 1 through 5. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Could we pause for a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are able to raise the dead with just one word. You've done it before, and now we have spread before us many words of yours, which means anything is possible. We pray that you would raise any kind of deadness that remains within us, give life to our souls, to our minds, to our hands. We pray that you would be present here and do something significant not because we are, but because you are, and because these words are the words of the King. So we pray that you would send your spirit, we pray that you exalt your Son, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would answer these prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it feels like you're spending your whole life in the waiting room. It was about 10 years ago when one of our members here in this congregation spoke those words to me. They were shared when he and his wife were going through an extended season of weariness and uncertainty, waiting for change, any kind of change. And as I've pondered those words because they've come back to me from time to time over the last 10 years, I've concluded that I think he's right. Sometimes it feels like you're spending your whole life in the waiting room. Advent invites us to pay attention to our waiting hearts. Friends, what have you been most longing for, aching for, waiting for lately? Is it relief from chronic pain, perhaps, 
or maybe from chronically unpaid bills? Is it a better job? The hope of romance? A child? A break? One of the things I think we're waiting for most deep in our hearts, one of the deepest longings of our hearts, I believe, is the longing for intimacy. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What is intimacy? In his good book, Grace in Practice, author Paul Zahn describes it this way, intimacy is seeing into the core of a person while not being repelled by what you see. It's being able to confess the words of Psalm 139, You have searched me, and you know me, and you have not fled from my presence. In other words, intimacy is being personally near, being truly known, and being fully embraced. And you really need all three of these components together to enjoy genuine intimacy, don't you? Because, you know, you can be physically near to someone, but still totally unknown. Like neighbors or even roommates who are side by side and yet still strangers. Or you can be known in great detail, but unless you're embraced, you might live your life feeling like you're living on a performance stage or maybe in a police state. Or you can be embraced and known, but if they're not personally near, there's this distance and disconnectedness that makes you still feel unknown. Intimacy is being personally near, being truly known, and being fully embraced. And we long for this, don't we? Because we were built for it. We were made for this. Our reading from Genesis 3, together with the chapter before it, Genesis chapter 2, reminds us that this is so. In the Garden of Eden, the first man and the first woman bore the image of God, like a child bears a resemblance to his mother. They share a special bond simply because they sort of look alike. We're told in the Garden of Eden, they were literally housemates with the God of the universe. They lived, we're told in verse 8, in the presence of God. That expression can also be rendered, they lived before the face of God. They were seen by God. They were known by God. They were loved by God personally warmed by his smile. They daily heard the sound or voice of the Lord God. They had conversations with him. Verse 8 also suggests that God often walked in the garden in the cool of the day. What do you think those walks and talks might have been like? And this rich intimacy was shared not only between God and the first people, they were also shared between the man and woman themselves. 
We're told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This nakedness was more than just physical. It was relational, emotional, psychological, even spiritual. They were totally vulnerable to one another and yet somehow also totally safe. There was no hiding and there was nothing to hide. We all, every one of us, have some sort of a hope they don't find out that one thing about me list running through our heads and hearts, don't we? Maybe a physical blemish, a mistake in your past that still haunts you, a personal weakness. Can you imagine having no hope they don't find that one thing about me list ever scrolling through your mind and your heart? Can you imagine it? We were made for intimacy, and so we crave it. Even from the earliest ages, we do. As I was reminded the other day when my son, lying on the couch, shouted from across the house to no one in particular, Who wants to snuggle with me? (laughs) You know, some of us are still that little five-year-old inside. We were made for intimacy, built it, built for it. We were designed for this kind of intimacy, but we lost it. That's the next part of the story, isn't it? We've become strangers to God and strangers to one another. When sin entered the world, suddenly the man and woman, they knew their nakedness all along, but suddenly their nakedness felt different. Shame seeped into their souls. Shame, you know, makes us run for cover. We're afraid of what others might see, the filth, the ugliness, even me. Intimacy is being personally near and truly known, right? Sometimes now that's our worst nightmare. Novelist Iris Murdoch once wrote, I hate solitude, but I'm afraid of intimacy. So we hide. Just as Adam and Eve hid from God, from one another, from themselves. From what or from who are you hiding today? The God of their walks and their talks was suddenly a threat. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. God's face was once something they craved, like a child looking for the gaze of her father. The smile on his face now looked like a frown. Where are you? God called to the man. He knew the answer, of course, on a factual basis. But never before had that question even been asked. His children had always been right by his side. I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam stammered, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And ever since that day, 
Those words have been repeated in ten thousands of hearts ten thousand times. In every one of our hearts, truth be told, I felt naked. I was afraid. I hid. You know, even that word intimacy might feel a little awkward for you to use it in describing your relationship with God or your pursuit of God. Intimacy? Some of us don't even know, maybe, that God can be known in that way. What we do know, though, I think, is that even just talking to God is incredibly hard. We're fidgety and all too inattentive when we pray. Prayer is hard. And you know, it's true that the more familiar you are with a person, the more you're able to simply sit in silence in their presence, right? A good friend or maybe someone that you are in love with. You can sit without words and without activity and be content. And so what might our difficulty with being just silent before God in His presence expose to us about perhaps how unfamiliar He really is to us? Many of us are quick to affirm that God is love, but if you are a Christian, when was the last time you said out loud, I love God? Do you? I mean, really love him? I think you do, many of you. But intimacy can still feel like an awkward description when God so often can feel so distant. And let's be real, intimacy in relationships with other people, well, that's just another kind of challenge that can even seem harder. I mean, can we just be more honest about how lonely it can be out there sometimes? If we were made to have intimacy, if we were built for this, why is it so dang hard to find friendship in this city? I wonder what your answer to that question might be. We want to be near to other people, but only as long as it doesn't violate our independence. We want to be known, but we also want to reserve the right to edit and control what people know of us. Pastor and author Ray Ortland recently wrote, You can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. And far too many of us, perhaps most especially in a town like ours, far too many of us have chosen the former, seeking fans and followers rather than genuine friends. And speaking of which, social media sometimes creates this false sense of intimacy, and we think it's good enough. leads us to feel closer to other people than we actually are. You know, we click a button on Facebook and somehow believe that therefore we are friends. Friends. It can give us a false sense of access, You never know when a distant celebrity might actually respond to you. The other day, I mentioned LeBron James in a tweet in passing, and now I'm pretty sure we're good friends. (laughs) That's how it works. Social media also gives us a false sense of vulnerability with other people. False intimacy. 
Because much of what's shared online is what writer Laura Turner has called curated imperfection. That's the the careful crafting of the flawlessly flawed version of ourselves that we want other people to admire. We want the feeling of intimacy, but without the cost and the commitment that true intimacy actually requires of us. Which is why casual, non-committal sex can be so attractive and so misleading and destructive. We want the feeling of intimacy, but without the long-term cost and commitment that true intimacy requires. For you, it might not be social media or sex, but we all have an answer to the question, where do you turn for your imitation intimacy fixes? We were made for true intimacy, but we lost it in the garden. And we've been filling our lives with counterfeit forms of it ever since. We've become strangers to God and strangers to one another. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because God never gave up on us. This is the story of His grace. That because of God's great love for us, he sought to restore that which had been lost. Do you know the story of God's pursuit of intimacy with you? As the story goes just a few pages after the reading that we just heard, also in the book of Genesis, God found a man named Abraham, who was at the time a total stranger to God. But God would change that. He's in the business of making strangers into friends. God made a deep personal bond with him. It's called a covenant. And God made Abraham a a big promise. I will bless you and all of your descendants, your whole family. I will be near to them. I will know them. I will embrace them. Not because they deserve it. Not because they've earned my favor. But simply because of my grace. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Abraham's family increased generation after generation. And God again and again kept his promise. And then one day, God decided that he didn't want a long-distance relationship anymore. He wanted more. The God of intimacy wanted to move into the neighborhood. So he told them to build a special portable tent called a tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary, he said to Moses in Exodus 25 that I may dwell in their midst, live amongst them. He wanted to travel with them as they wandered through the wilderness. He wanted to be near to them. He would live, therefore, in sort of a mobile home. That's what the tabernacle was, you know, a trailer. But even then, you couldn't just run right into God's house. Just like you can't with a new neighbor that you barely know, even if you're getting to know them. 
I don't know what the most personal place in your home or apartment might be. For some people, it's the bedroom. For others, it's the man cave in the basement. At this point in Israel's history, God would let the people onto his front porch. But it was only the priest that could actually go into the family room. And even then, only on occasion. And that room was decorated with symbols like trees that sort of harkened back to the Garden of Eden. You see, because in this room, God was bringing back a little bit of an echo of what things once were when he shared the special intimacy with his people. He was bringing it back even if it was just a sliver of what they once had. God's mobile home, his dwelling place, wasn't yet exactly like the Garden. Even the more permanent version of his local dwelling, the temple, wasn't quite like what it was in the garden, not yet at least, but it was a start. But the prophets would begin to speak of a day, a day of heightened intimacy that God would one day share with his people. Sometimes in the Old Testament, chosen leaders would be described in the most intimate terms in terms of their relationship with God, radical intimacy. And so Abraham was called the friend of God. And it was said of Moses that he spoke to God face to face. And King David was called a man after God's own heart. They were special chosen leaders described this way, but the prophet said one day all of God's people would be described with those terms. Friend, speaking with God face to face, having the very heart of God. A day was coming, according to the prophet Jeremiah, when it would be said by God of all his people, they shall all know me personally, intimately, truly, from the least to the greatest. And Ezekiel envisioned a day when there would be a future arrival of an even greater tent, a bigger mobile home, a more perfect temple, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. But who could have imagined that God's personal dwelling place here on earth might someday be not just a place, but finally a person? Which, of course, is the story of Christmas the first advent of God the Son. Indeed, as John 1.14 testifies, and the Word, the Son of God, became flesh and made His dwelling, pitched His tabernacle, rolled in His mobile home among us. At last, God's mobile home has become a man. His personal presence became a person in flesh. Which is also why when Matthew told the story of Jesus' birth in chapter 1 of his gospel, he gave Jesus and applied to him the old, Old Testament nickname. He said this, all this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Intimacy unleashed, present like he had never been present before. Jesus, who brought us into a new and rich kind of communion with God. And he did it not only through his birth, his life, but most especially through his death and his resurrection. Because it was on the cross that Jesus was treated like a stranger in cosmic judgment. Treated even like an enemy because of the sins that we had committed. Paying the price that we should have paid. Jesus was treated like a stranger by God that we might enjoy intimacy with God. The one who for all of eternity enjoyed infinite fellowship with God the Father in spirit. Cried out on the cross under holy judgment for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And through this grand act of intimate love, Jesus has brought us into the very bosom of God. As he has said to his disciples, and he says even to us, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friends. And more than friends, he's also given us the name children, sons and daughters that have been brought into the family of God. And he's given you more than just a status of intimacy. He's brought you into the very life of God itself. As he has sent to you his spirit. And as we're told in Ephesians 3, that Christ actually dwells in our hearts by his spirit through faith. You see, because it was never enough for God just to to know you or just to talk to you. It was always his purpose that he might fill you and live in you. So near does this God of intimacy want to be with you beyond all our human deserving. And yet even for all of this, even for all these countless wonders of the gospel, the story is still not finished. As someone says, you know, there's another reading you haven't gotten to, Revelation 21. This grand vision from the Apostle John, who's looking forward to the future when the great, glorious, intimate presence of God in heaven finally descends upon this estranged world to heal all things and to do as Jesus has declared in verse 5 that he would do, make all things on earth new. And here we find in verse 3, you may have noticed all the same echoes of these promises and themes of intimacy that God had promised his people from long ago. We're told, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, Emmanuel, as their God. God's great 
personal, intimate, mobile home. Now covers God's people and his earth. The eternal, intimate presence of God has swooped us all in with the return, the second advent of his son. And we will forever live not on God's porch, but finally and fully in the very family room of God, the throne room of the king. We are there even now by faith. But one day we will be there in person. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, one day we will be We will know God and see him as he is, even as we ourselves are fully known. Drawn into the rapturous delight of our Father. No more hiding. No more running. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And if you take that metaphor and the imagery seriously, don't you understand how personal, how intimate is the healing love of God in that time? where he doesn't simply wave a magic wand or snap his fingers to heal you of your wounds, but he leans over and wipes your tears with his own hand. Every tear dried, every wound healed, and no more death anymore. He will do this Personally, do you see the rich imagery that's put before us? And even this imagery here that we find in verse 2, that this community of God's people and this heavenly presence of God descends upon the world, we're told, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Almost like two lovers coming together on their wedding night is the picture, it's the story, as theologians have described it, of God's consummation of his love with his people. And so the picture is certainly one that evokes the language of sexual intimacy even, and I know at this point I'm making some of you uncomfortable, bear with me. Because it gives us a little bit of window, a window into exactly the kind of intensity of affection and commitment that God promises in this heavenly consummated intimacy. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, describes God and his marital intimacy to us in this way. Would you have him near to you, united to you by a spiritual union? So close as to be fitly represented by the union of the wife to the husband, of the branch to the vine. So he will be united to you if you accept of him. Or consider the words of the Puritan Thomas Shepard who says this, perhaps in a provocative manner. Consider he, God, makes love to thee. Take thy soul to the bride chamber, there to be with him forever and ever. Oh, beloved, don't sell God short. Don't you know all that he desires to pour out into your soul? 
All that he desires to share with you. All that he wants to satisfy your deep longing for connection of nearness, of embrace, of knowledge. And of course, this intimacy that he promises spills over from our own souls into the relationships that we share with other people. He describes this new community in the new heavens and new earth as a holy city, which doesn't mean that there's going to be a lot of concrete and tall buildings, may, but most of all, it's talking about density of relationships. There's going to be a lot of people there and people nearby. Imagine bumping into a city of people and loving it every moment. Death shall be no more. No more separation from loved ones. The ultimate loss of human intimacy. And no more crying and no more pain. The end of all the injury that we cause one to another, including the injury of estrangement, the loss of intimacy and love. This is the promise that God holds out to you. This is still what awaits you. There's more to the story to be had. And so you say, as we close now, Pastor, why did you bring us on this long journey through the Bible telling this grand story of God's commitment to intimacy with us? You even perhaps barely got through Revelation 21, touching on it only briefly. Why this long journey? Well, I could answer, perhaps, by urging you to seek deeper intimacy with God, especially in this Advent season. Maybe to pray as Charles Spurgeon prayed, O lover of our souls, be not strange to us. Or I could respond by urging you to perhaps dare to cultivate a little bit of intimacy one with another during Advent. You know, intimacy can be a threatening word, intimidating. Uh, Maybe just choose one person. Maybe think of it as friendship. Take one step in building friendship with one person this Advent season. I could say those things, but I won't say those things. In answer to this question, why this long story that we must rehearse to understand all that God has in store for you one day? And I want to answer by simply saying this. God can and God will give you a foretaste of that day to come. But as you see the story of God keeping his promise again and again and again, that you must know that we have before us a God of promise. He will not break his promise of filling that deep longing of your heart, of nearness, of knowledge, and and, and embrace. And so you need to know that even as you limp forward toward that day, that day when God will come and dwell with you as he has never dwelled before, that you must remember That God has not forgotten you. He's still writing the story. Indeed, he will finish it to the very end. God will not forget you. God has not forgotten you. Even in your marriage where you feel like intimacy may have been long lost. 
God has not forgotten you, even as you mourn and grieve the loss of relationships, especially those that you've recently lost to death. God has not forgotten you as you struggle with the feelings of betrayed intimacy, maybe at home, maybe in the workplace. God has not forgotten you as you struggle with that besetting sin or maybe that addictive habit that doesn't seem to go away, that seems to push other people away, and even that seems to make God feel so far. God has not forgotten you in your wrestlings with loneliness. God has not forgotten you in all your disappointment with broken promises of intimacy and love. God has not forgotten you. He will keep his promise to you, and there's much, much more to his promise yet to be fulfilled as he promises to fill your deepest longings. Because the day will come when we are personally near, when we are truly known, when we are fully embraced by God and other people, beloved. That day is coming. That day is coming soon. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would come and help us in our unbelief. That you would give us renewed hope, even amidst our brokenness. That you would strengthen us and feed our hungry and longing souls. Be near to us, O God of nearness. Be intimate with us and teach us intimacy, O Emmanuel, in whose name we pray. Amen.